it is pretty powerful to think about how can we as faculty developers work with our student affairs colleagues to get that student voice because I think faculty respond to that student voice. Welcome back. You're on the Faculty Factory Podcast, and I'm Kim Skorupski here at Hopkins, and I'm looking at Dr. Megan Palmer. Hi, Megan. Hi, Kim. It's great to be back. Yes, everybody. Dr. Palmer was with us almost three years ago to the date. Check out episode number 32 with Dr. Megan Palmer, where we talked about really cool things happening at Indiana University around faculty vitality and tools, leadership assessments, diversity, really cool things. Dr. Megan Palmer is not only an associate professor of emergency medicine and higher education in the School of Education at Indiana University, but she's also the senior associate dean for faculty affairs, professional development, and diversity. And so, again, thanks for coming back, Megan. And we kind, you kind of um, gave me the teaser edition of what, what you wanted to bring to the Faculty Factory community today. And it is going to be a really interesting um, conversation. So three topics. And so topic number one was all around the past you know, couple of years, accomplishments, changes, and challenges. And so Lead us off. Tell us what wonderful things are happening at Indiana University School of Medicine. You know, probably not surprising that uh, among the things that we've had to look at is our work around DEIJ, diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. And this especially came to the front for us because our students became, our medical students became quite active after George Floyd's death and really felt um, that our faculty were not responsive to their needs, were not as well educated as they should be around social disparities in health, but also just around race and racism and systemic racism. And so they really pushed on us to say the school needs to do more and better. And that resulted in a series of task forces uh, with students, residents, graduate students, faculty, and staff. So we had one that looked at our honor code specifically. We had another group that looked at opportunities around training. And then another that looked at the use of data and kind of what data should we collect? Um, what's What are best practices around uh, data sharing, especially as it relates to the success and progress of people from minoritized backgrounds? Should we be doing a survey of um, the environment, for example? So that's what that group looked at. That All that work has resulted in a bunch of new activity, probably the biggest of which it was the recommendation that actually diversity be peeled off of the office of which I am a part. So rather than having our executive associate dean for faculty affairs, professional development and diversity, we will move to a place where we have our executive associate dean for faculty affairs and professional development, and we will add a new executive um, dean, executive associate dean for diversity. We're currently in the process of searching for that role, and um, that you know that's a little bit of a hard transition. It's a little bittersweet. It's what we absolutely need at our institution. I'm really very happy about it, and so are all my colleagues. 
Um, but it'll also be hard because members of our team will be split up into two different uh, reporting lines. And some of the work, for example, that I've done, like leading the diversity task force around training, is probably not work that I would do in the future because there'll be a separate unit. So that was a big accomplishment, though, was to get that approval for that executive associate dean role. In addition to that, uh, we added to the annual review form a requirement that faculty report on what they've done around DEIJ, so for their own training, and then set a goal. And so the goal could be, you know, that I'm going to do some training. The goal could be um, the bar was but fairly low, but it was a new addition at the time. Um, so they have to set a goal around the work that they're going to do to advance DEIJ. So for those who are exceedingly active, right, it was a way to actually get credit for the work that they're doing. They might be mentoring students. They might be working on our task forces. They might be doing work in the community. So they got credit. And for those who were not doing anything, it was a chance to have that conversation and really um, move our faculty along. We also decided that we were going to require all of our leaders across the school to engage in at least two hours of uh, cultural competency training, and there's a host of different ways that they could meet that. And by leaders, I mean every residency program director, every clerkship director, every vice chair, every chair, every residency program coordinator, clerkship coordinator, and so on. And so each department decided how they were going to do that. There were some central activities that checked the box, so to speak. Um, but that, that was a requirement that uh, every single leader across the school engage in some kind of cultural humility or cultural competence training. So that, too, was new for us. That resulted in then having conversations about our P&T guidelines, which I know from our good friends at GFA, other groups have also started thinking about what do we do with our P&T guidelines in two ways. One is uh, to give credit for the work that people are doing around diversity, equity, inclusion. And two is to remove some of um, our measures and our approaches that are really steeped in uh, white culture, white supremacy, that are really old tools that we continue to sort of put value in that perhaps we shouldn't, that there are other ways to measure somebody's output other than simply an impact factor or presenting at a national meeting, international meeting, which you can do if you have a certain amount of privilege if you're invited to that meeting and you can afford to go to that meeting and you don't have to worry about childcare to go to that said meeting. And so thinking broadly about how do we evaluate faculty work and not just relying on some of those traditional metrics. So we recently, our faculty steering committee recently adopted new set of standards, well, not really new set of standards, but a new approach to our standards where there will be an opportunity for folks who are doing DEIJ work to really get more credit for that. That work will still be situated inside teaching, service, or research, but it's been articulated more clearly that this is work that should count toward promotion and or tenure. And then in addition to that, we have sort of a sliding approach in how we're going to roll this out, that eventually there'll be a requirement that everybody in their dossier uh, document their commitment to DEIJ and the work that they've done. Uh, initially, that will be, I went to a training. Um, but over time, we expect that that will change and develop and people will have a diversity statement, for example, as part of their dossier. But that, that will be a slow roll um, in the way this proposal was written. So those are some of the things that, I guess, one other thing that I would say is a highlight is that we also implemented 
a new program to recruit faculty from minoritized backgrounds, specifically our own trainees. And so um, we have a new program that's called iDream, and it allows us to give uh, early incentive, essentially a forgivable loan to our trainees who sign on to work at Indiana University Health or our other health partner, Eskenazi Health. And they can get that stipend, monthly stipend for up to two years, depending on when they sign. The stipend would start at the point they sign. It's a one-for-one repayment. So if they get that stipend for 10 months before they start, then for they have to work for us for 10 months and then they're clear. So it's not double like some of these national or other programs have been. In addition to that, for those who come from a minoritized background, in their second and third year of faculty appointment, they'll get 10% clinical release time to engage in leadership development and scholarly development activities. So those who don't work at the academic health center, because this is a health center-wide approach, not just the academic health center, those who don't work at the academic health center will do physician leadership development activities within our health system, um, but the ones at the academic health center will engage in pre-existing programs that our unit already did, a, you know, a early leadership cohort-based program like lots of our colleagues do around the country, and then a follow-up to that that's really um, contextualizing that from the lens of being a person of color and, you know, what does mentoring mean and what does my service mean, but then also getting really focused mentoring on a scholarly project and getting some funding for that scholarly project. And that will be in year three that that would happen as part of that iDream program. So we've signed three people, that's it. You know, it's a brand new program, but we've signed three people through that mechanism, um, but have a lot of interest of chairs um, and, and um, administrators at some of our hospitals that aren't at the Academic Health Center as well. Megan, congratulations. I, I'm just sitting here stunned because I feel like we, each one of these things you mentioned, we could blow up into at least 20, 30 minute conversation, but I can't help but just kind of do the most this recent, the I Dream recruiting program. I'm thinking, what, what are, how did you get this? How did you sell this? And meaning to the department chairs, Who's paying for that 10% release time? Because I know the first question whenever I talk about these great programs is, what's that going to cost? What's it going to cost? What's it going to cost? And of course, you can, I'm sure your your financial wizards calculated return on investment for recruitment and retention, and not to mention the, the softer things like satisfaction and engagement and morale. But that 10%, just quickly, can you tell us um, how you sold that, who's paying for that, or was, is it at the department level? And what, was it a tough sell or were the department chairs embracing it and saying, great idea? Yeah. So the um, early incentive component, so that monthly stipend that they get before they become faculty, that's paid for by the practice plan. Now, in many cases, that means that it's clinical revenue that's either from their revenue stream or somebody else's revenue stream, and the practice plan is committing those dollars. So that's not directly out of the pocket of the chair, although it's sort of indirectly, right, because it's an expense that then the practice isn't going to be able to pay for something else, but it's not in their direct budget line. That's at the Academic Health Center. It's our physician practice plan, IU Health Physicians. If somebody's hired in our West region, for example, then the West region hospital um, would take that cost on. Okay. 
The 10% is uh, locally covered. So the department that signs somebody has to give that 10%. Um, I will say that it honestly, it wasn't a very hard sell. Now we'll see how many we get signed because that will be the true test of if it's a hard sell or not. Um, I think it wasn't a hard sell for a bunch of reasons. One, because the health system was going saying that the practice plan is going to cover that stipend. Um, so, you know, there was a commitment by the health system. Two is we are in Indiana and we are not diverse and our patient population is, and it's super problematic. And our students have told us that, our residents have told us that, our patients have told us that, and we know that. So I think there's a wide commitment that we have to diversify the faculty. And that's been uh, long held, but there's been increased attention um, over the years. We had a, a bad patient um, experience and outcome with a patient, an African-American woman at our IU facility in the north part, not at the downtown center. And she, Susan Moore, some of you may have heard about this incident and got national attention. She reported herself on Facebook reacting to the manner in which she was cared. She was a physician herself. She ultimately died not at our hospital. And that created a a lot of concern from our community about the experience of African-Americans in our health system. And there was a big review panel with external external folks involved and a set of recommendations that went forward from that. And so in addition to the school commitment, there's a strong commitment at the health system that we absolutely have to diversify our workforce all of our workforce, but particularly the physician workforce. So I think those things just came together in a way. So maybe the timing was right that we didn't have chairs balk at, I can't afford to do this. I think more chairs feel like I can't afford to not do this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, kudos to you for putting the, um, the money into this and investing dollars into this in addition to programming and doing support, like uh, we're going to do faculty development support and have these leadership programs, but this is actually, you know, no money, no mission. Our former Dean Paul Rothman always said a lot of people, you know, no money, no mission. If you don't have that money there, um, it's it's kind of hard to to sustain something and and demonstrate real support. So I've not heard of anything like this. So again, kudos to Amy. Thanks. The other thing the health system did that I'm quite proud of is that they decided you know, so we have a whole workforce plan and you can only fill if you have FTE available, right? They decided that for anybody that we were recruiting that was one of our own grads specifically, um, if that person was underrepresented in medicine, that we didn't have to have the FTE, that we have such a dire need to diversify our physician workforce that we could go ahead and pursue that recruit and essentially we'll figure it out. Um, You know, because we know we need, you know, African-American family physicians or um, Latino emergency physicians. And so we're going to just figure it out. And so that also, I think, sent a strong message uh, about the priority of diversifying the physician workforce. Wow. So that involved HR or involves HR and all the other all the yeah. budgeting people who are saying, what do you mean figure it out? Yeah, we're going to figure it out. We're going to figure yeah. it out. And if anything, right. the past couple of years has taught us is that we can figure anything out. Right. <laughs> if That's there's right. a will, there's a way. We're going to make it happen. That's right. This That's- did involve a lot with our legal and all, you know, both the school legal folks and the health system legal folks who have been, frankly, terrific to work with and also really, um, you know, worked hard to make sure we could do this. 
Yeah. Shout out to the collaboration when we kind of, I know many of us, me, I'm probably at the front there, get my hackles up when people talk about meeting with finance people or meeting with legal people or meeting with HR people. I kind of have this internal sense of, ah, but boy, (laughs) when I, when I humble myself and kind of try to take the, the viewpoint and widen my lens to see where they're coming from. And we all figure out, Hey, we're all, this have the same thing at heart here. We all want to serve the community for, you know, and treat and cure and prevent disease. And so then you, okay, wait a minute, let's, we're on the same team. So we can figure this out. So you guys got it worked out. I also wanted to put, when you started off a shout out to, you said when the George Floyd, you know, crisis hit our country, that your students, your learners brought this to the fore. And it really kind of gave me a little bit of a mini whiplash because I'm, you know, in the School of Medicine, we deal with faculty. And so my role is in faculty development, it's all about faculty. So I really don't interact with learners or students traditionally. And it really is inspiring to me that this, that it gives me hope also that it's the, the new generations who are coming up who um, are not going to sit idly by and just say, well, this is a tradition. This is what we do around here. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut and kind of uh, do as told and walk the walk. But I, I really, again, um, was really inspired by you, you, your students having led that effort and that got you to where you are now, that it was just a group of people who said, no, change yeah. it. I, I find, and I don't know if you find this, that if I can use the voice of the learner with faculty, um, but they're often more responsive than if it's me or the literature, the evidence, uh, you know, especially around things around DEIJ. So if the, if the learner can tell a personal story about why that case that faculty member used in their anatomy course was offensive to them, they're way more likely to respond to that um, than maybe not at that moment, but in an development workshop, they're more likely to respond to that than if I just talk about the best practice. So that emotion from a learner, because you know they chose to be in academics because they want to influence learners. And so that's been really powerful. I mean, the same thing is true on my emergency medicine side of things that our residents' interests and demands have resulted in us having to do things differently um, and having to do more work around diversity um, that, you know, left to our own, we, we might not have. And so it, it is pretty powerful to think about how can we as faculty developers work with our student affairs colleagues to get that student voice, because I think faculty respond to that student voice in ways that they don't always respond to each other. I mean, even having them on committees it's sort of amazing. We've had them on curriculum committees many times and, you know, they're not responsible for the oversight of the curriculum like the faculty are, but man, they'll say something and the entire committee sort of has a moment that they might not have if it was a colleague who said that. Oh, Megan, Megan, it's so powerful. That personalization, those personal stories speak volumes more than, you know, that's what they would say, a picture tells a thousand words. If you can paint right. a picture for someone rather than jam data down their throat and literature and tables and graphs and, and estimates and, and um, dashboards, yes, those are important. We do need to track the data, but the personal stories, and then that hits us more directly when you can hear about what's happened with, you know, this many people died of COVID, but when you hear, oh, you know, so-and-so's sister, brother, aunt, partner, oh my gosh, that 
it brings it home more salient. And that's, you're right. I think that's what the human component of us, the, the storytelling around the campfire, it's prehistoric. Yeah. He's got that story and that really is compelling. So thank you for, thank you for all that work there and for your students and for, for you having the courage to just do it and not just kind of do the proverbial pat on the head, say, yeah, we're going to work on it. And we'll think about this for a couple of years and get back to you. It sounds like you really marched fast forward and got it done. I think some of them would say we, we did that. We, you know, we took a slow path for many, many years. And then finally it just came to a head and we had to do stuff. And we have way more to go. We have a lot of room for improvement, but at least we're moving in the right direction. Yes, you are. Now let's go into topic number two, which I would love to hear about your experience with all the the pandemic stuff and the Zoomy stuff and uh, how that's affecting you and what you're seeing happening and what's going on around in in your side of the world. Yeah, so we um, definitely not right away in the pandemic um, and faculty affairs, professional development and diversity, but probably, I don't know, six-ish months into the pandemic, I think we we saw huge increases in our attendance at events. Um, and, and particularly some, this kind of goes to that last part about the storytelling. So um, I, I think my colleague, Mary Dankowski, when you talked to her before, maybe had talked about the stepping stones of women telling about their experience in leadership. Yeah, that used to have an attendance of about, I don't know, 30 to 50, depending on the person and the timing of the event. Um, the ones that we've had in the last two years have had 150 people. Attend. Oh. So that, you know, that's given us pause because that in event, that particular event always felt like that was an event you needed to do in person because it was storytelling and it was connection and people could ask questions. And it turns out that, you know, that, that, that doesn't seem to be the case. So we've had to do some evaluation around, you know, how do you decide when something does have to be in person? When you're camp, when you're in school with nine campuses all over the state, probably a lot less has to be in person than you used to do. And then everybody at the non-downtown campus was marginalized and they were on Zoom, but nobody else was. And we all know we're bad at that. So that has been a question. And then the other thing is sort of who's good at doing Zoom and doing Zoom well. So the example I'll use is in for new faculty orientation. So we have a five-day required new faculty orientation program, which is in combination with our health system. Wow. So it's, it's a joint effort between IU Health Physicians, our practice plan, IU Health, and the school. And it's a five-day program. The first two days are heavily programmed and really run centrally out of our unit, FAPPD. So those are the days that I was looking at most closely because another day is a half day of a very interactive session about um, difficult conversations with patients. And um, that's run by another group and they had figured out how they were gonna do this in this new environment. And then the other two and a half days are up to the department. They have a checklist of things they need to do and they manage that. So it's those first two days and we you know, had to do everything online. But then when we got to a place where we could come back, we started having conversations about looking at the evaluation data and talking to the speakers and then having conversations about some things related, frankly, to convenience, even for our new faculty that... Uh, 
you know, they, they may have just moved here on Sunday and on Monday <laughs> they have to come downtown and figure out where they're going to park and spend the whole day there. Um, but it also are just, so we decided we wanted to go hybrid uh, in order to get the best of both worlds. You know, people missed being in person and some sessions worked better in person. And we always took their professional photo for their website and for anything else they needed it. Well, of course we weren't doing that. So some things like that, but we also made decisions about which would be Zoom and which would be in-person based on the success or lack of success of individuals or groups of people using Zoom. And I, and I think that was the right approach, honestly, because we tried to teach our colleagues about polling and breakout rooms and different ways you could increase activity because in person we would do more of that. Um, But some people just didn't bite. And so in order to ensure that it was a high quality experience, we made decisions about what stayed on Zoom and what went in person based on the skill set and comfort of the groups of presenters. We don't have any one person responsible for that session every single time, but um, the group of presenters. So frankly, that meant that FAPDD, my colleagues and I are doing a lot of our stuff on Zoom. Um, and some of my colleagues, um, you know, for example, maybe the billing and coding people or risk management people, they might be doing something in person because they were more comfortable and better at it and the session went better. So that's been a stretch a little bit because it felt like the way to do it was say, to say day one, do this and day two, do this. And then to actually take a step back and say, well, what content is best and what delivery, who's best at delivering it? Because we should be modeling good education (laughs) and new faculty orientation um, on Zoom and in person. So that's been an interesting um, discussion and debate. But some of our programs, like, I don't know if you've had this, our cohort-based programs, gosh, were those hard to do all online? You know, it just, you just, you you know, our, our LAMP program has been around forever, for 25 years. And that's a cohort-based program for faculty in their second and third year. And that just, that just doesn't feel the same when you don't meet people, really. Oh, it's, it's so frustrating. I, I've talked about this so many times to colleagues. I'm such an extrovert. And now, you know, two plus years working out of my basement and talking to my computer screen, it is, as the presenter, from my perspective, it, it drains me. Yeah, I'm, I so feed off of the energy of the participants, and and when we do breakouts in big rooms, and hearing the laughter and the noise and the chatter and the and the whispers and the just seeing the human interaction, that really inflates my balloon. And so when I give presentations and seminars and workshops on Zoom at this this flat affect and looking at my own face and. I literally will slide off of my chair and like lie on the ground. I feel so <laughs> just exhausted afterwards. So I, I hear you. And it's such what we did. We were, we went to all zoom with our leadership cohort longitudinal programs and now planning for now fiscal year 23, many of our program, we've decided like a first session in person midway through in-person, closing session in-person, but the intervening several weeks would be Zoom just for convenience sake of the putting ourselves in the shoes of the physicians of our of our scientists is that they do, they want to click. It's, it is much yeah. more convenient for them. 
Um, yeah. but, but you do lose that connection, a human connection. So we're, we're trying a hybrid this coming year of some mandatory in person and then most of it Zoom to see how that works out. Because I agree with the hybrid, hybrid to me just so it seems terrifying of trying to do breakouts and interaction. You'd have to have, to me, like double teamwork, someone on the computer while someone's running around a room, running back and forth to look at the chat. And it's just that disconnectedness, disconnectivity, I think would make me go bonkers. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we even played that out. Like, what would it look like if there was a group of faculty that were on Zoom and then there was a group of faculty in the room? And I mean, that just basically ended up feeling like we were going to have to have double the number of people to run anything to do it well. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, how did you determine... How did you um, kindly, or did you maybe not even address the idea of, oh, your group, maybe you, you know, were, maybe you should do it in person, or we want to do it, so nah, we actually would prefer you rather do it in person. I mean, did you, was there any kind of uh, debate or pushback from groups? At some point, there was pushback. It should all be back in person, but there were some sessions that just worked better on Zoom, you know, like, so it was sort of silly, Um to do some of our training, you know, like to do Cerner training, the EMR training in a classroom when you're using a computer and it just seems bizarro land. So, so there was a little pushback initially about, no, let's just all go back to in-person. The actual sessions themselves, probably not so much in part because we use the evaluation data, you know, to help make those decisions. So we could say, well, Here's what the evaluations say. Here's the, where people commented about this worked well. I wish I was in this one in person. Um, and then we have a core committee and that core committee is stakeholders, but it's not necessarily every presenter. So the core committee is who decided. And then we also have an advisory board, sort of the, net, the highest level leaders that have oversight. Um, and so they just gave it the stamp of approval. So then it was, you know, sort of the, the people delivering it were just told. And I, I guess we probably got lucky that, and we tried to also accommodate, like it doesn't seem like this person or this person has told our coordinator they hate Zoom and they're super uncomfortable, you know? So we tried to accommodate that to some degree too. Megan, I know we could spend an hour on orientation, but just a couple of questions because I'm dying to know. When you said five-day orientation, I almost fell out of my chair because we are here at Hopkins uh, we're going to do a half day orientation because we, we're having a hard time figuring out how are we going to get our clinicians who already have their calendars booked three, four, five months in advance. Um, we have a new vice dean. We're we're struggling with the half day. So when does this? At what time? You kind of said like they just moved to town on Sunday and start on Monday. Do you schedule that five day orientation as soon as a hire comes on board? Ideally. Do you offer it once a year? Is it, I mean, what is the frequency of which you have the orientation and how soon after they're hired? Because here we've got 256 new people who just rolled on July 1, but some of them, when we sent them an email, hey, welcome to the faculty. Like, I, I came six months ago. What are you talking about? So they come all during the year and we're trying to figure out what's the best way. And, and you know, Patrick Smith from Mississippi, they do a monthly orientation, which I just, we're going to try to do like monthly cohorts of like the class of. 23. So hopefully they'll all get to know each other. And then every month offer training and development that kind of piggybacks on that orientation, but they build a little community, not leadershipy, but it's just, you know, getting to your growing your career success likelihood. Right. We do a monthly orientation, except for in July and August, where we do it twice a month. 
everybody has to be hired to start on the first of the month in, in September, October, November, December through June. And in July, they can hire, I mean, roughly the first of the month, right? Based on where it falls, (laughs) the first business day of the month. And then in July and August, there's a second option, which is roughly the 15th of the month. And so we run orientation twice in July and August. Goodness. And so people cannot work clinically until they've completed this five-day orientation program. That just wasn't. So everybody knows, I mean, but that, that, you know, we had to get obviously a lot of buy-in at the time we made this and had to announce you can't hire somebody on whatever day you want. So if you hire a new person and they say, oh, well, you know, I'll tell you January, the beginning of January is a huge problem, right? Somebody's like, oh, I'll start at the first of the year. And then you send them their calendar. And on the January 2nd, we expect you to be here. And they're like, oh, well, I'm going to be in Jamaica. (laughs) Um, So I can't come then. I'll come on the 10th. You know, and my my administrator told me that was okay. So we had lots of bumps in the road to get there. Now we don't. Everybody knows. So, and people know to not say like, oh yeah, we'll work out your clinical calendar. It's okay that you're going to Jamaica because they know they can't work clinically until they do the five-day orientation. And if they can't start at the beginning of the month, they have to wait till the next month. And footnote reminder, you said this five-day orientation at Indiana is a combination of the practice plan and the school and then the department has a checklist of things to do. So this sounds like a, th- a three-part lift that the school, the practice plan, the department, they're all doing components that must be almost like uh, required, mandatory until one can begin working. Yeah, so this is, right. to me, that's like a different way of doing the orientation. We don't do it that way. They, our faculty come in and they're like thrown right into the into the into the pits and like get get busy and then. It's, yeah, uh, yeah. It's that's what that's what that's what we used to do too. And then we <laughs> and then we did a rapid improvement event, you know, an event to look into what we were doing for orientation and kind of discovered how scary things were and decided yeah. this wasn't okay. Um, um and, and like, is that how you want to welcome people that they show up and they have to be in the OR and they don't even <laughs> know how to log into the EMR? You know, like that that seems frightening to me. That doesn't seem like a great place to. <laughs> Welcome. We're so happy you're here that we did nothing for you. Here's your scalpel. Get busy. Get cracking. Yeah. Right. And I'm I'm the other, again, the extrovert at the opposite end of the spectrum. But I've told this story before. I went to a a church retreat where it was a a church I'd never been to out in the suburbs of Baltimore. And I walked in and I felt like I was an NFL superstar because as I was walking down the big hallway, there were balloons. And people lined up on both sides and they're clapping. And I thought, is there someone behind me? And it was me. And that was like the whole thing. I never felt so special or welcomed or it was just shocking. And I thought, that's what we do for our faculty. So I got on my soapbox and my and my colleagues go, oh, here she goes. And I'm like, we should have their big, their pictures on the screen on the auditorium. There should be balloons. There should be confetti. There should be welcome. And it's, 
a huge, huge thing. And they're like, yeah, okay, Kim, calm down, calm down, deep breaths, deep breaths. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and that first day, like we're very intentional about what we do that first day. So we do our shared history, mission and values between the health system and the school. We do a session about professionalism and how to talk to a colleague if they're not, you know, treating somebody well. We do a session about teaching. We do a session about um, unconscious bias and racism in medicine. So we're very intentional about, especially that first day, like what's the tone we want to send and how do we tell people about who we are and what we value? I love it. I love it. Love it. That's wonderful. God. Now, I think we could do way more. You know, we're so happy you're here. That first day is on Zoom. Um, and we do, we have, you know, some interaction. We have small group work so that they can share, you know, what's a hidden gem in Indianapolis and things like that to develop some of that community. Uh Um, But it it would be nice to, I agree. I think at one point we really wanted, we, we tried to host a breakfast where our leaders would come and wouldn't it be great if the president of the health system and the Dean and, you know, their department shared, well, you know, three months later, nobody was showing up and that was worse, right. To say, we're going to have a welcome with all these executives and there was not one of them there. Oh my gosh. All right. Well, I feel better because our, our Dean does show up our president of the hospital. They do show up. So we do get, we do get the, get all the pomp and circumstance from the the leaders, but I'm the one who wants to be the the cheering and the the cheerleaders. (laughs) Uh, That's great. What a great orientation. Uh, Wonderful. Wonderful. Dr. Palmer, we have number three, um, the future. So you share with me a really interesting teaser about you're thinking about things in the future, particular to specific to Indiana. What's that? And how are you going to deal with that? Yeah. So right now, as we speak, um, our state started a special session on Monday. Well, they started the special session earlier than that, but public commentary was available starting this past Monday. Um, about an abortion ban. And Indiana is a very conservative state, a very red state. And um, there's no doubt that we're going to have, you know, some ban of abortion and more than we've had. We've already had fairly restrictive rules. And obviously that's going to have huge implications for our faculty, for our current faculty, for our current residents, especially as you can imagine, OBGYN residents, Um, and others, emergency physicians, and frankly, in addition to that, and I think it's going to lead to attrition, and in addition to that, I think it's going to be really hard to recruit. And so one is, you know, our our great leaders at the highest level of the organization are trying um, quietly to work with our lobbyists to get um, more sound legislation considered, but we're not you know, we're, we're no fools to think that, you know, we're going to look like Colorado is or Minnesota is or California is. So it, it's meant that we have to have these kind of immediate plans of how is the health system going to prepare our providers, not just physicians, but, um, you know, all our providers immediately, because the day that this law changes practice has to change. Mm. And so how are we going to prepare them and how are we going to assure them um, of the support that they have and access to legal counsel if they need that and so on. And then the long-term effect is how do we recruit and retain faculty and learners? So, you know, having some, our OBGYN colleagues having preliminary conversations with 
uh, Planned Parenthood group in Illinois, where we would have to create a rotation. So there's a lot of things like that that are immediate um, work, but the long range stuff is, um, it's a little, I mean, it's discouraging and overwhelming, um, but, you know, we're going to have to work through it and figure out, you know, what does that mean? And, and, you know, we're not alone, certainly, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but we are the first state that didn't have a trigger law yeah. who now who created this special session. So um, unfortunately that means everybody's looking at us. And then our, uh, one of our colleagues, um, you know, got national attention. Um, she was one of our faculty, um, was the person who, um, provided abortion services to the 10 year old from Ohio who had to cross state lines because she wasn't allowed anymore to have an abortion in Ohio. And our attorney general, um, went on national television and attacked her. Mm-hmm. So that's created a lot of concern among our faculty of does the health system and does the institution have our back? And so there's a lot of repair, I think, that we have to do around that. I mean, I think our department of OBGYN did a great job supporting our faculty member and behind the scenes, we did a good job of supporting her, but um, that wasn't seen. And so there's just a lot of fear right now with everything that's going on. But I think the implications, our group is responsible for helping departments with faculty recruitment, but then also the full oversight of executive recruitment. We essentially have an in-house search firm, Mm -hmm. Um, but we're, it's going to be tough. Hey, and it's, and I'm guessing that if, if I were you, I would go to those, the, your student body. Those learn, learners seem to be the ones who are on like the most pressing current issues and ask them uh, to participate in some thinking about how to mitigate risk and serve your community and serve the populations and protect faculty. So that's, I'm, I, I bet you your, your students and learners would, would really uh, relish that opportunity to help change the future and encode some. They, they requested and got a meeting with the Dean and the president of the health system um, yesterday, I think it was, and oh, they presented, they presented sort of all the impact of what's gone on. And I wasn't there for the presentation, but I heard the Dean of students is a good friend of mine. Um, I heard from the Dean of students, but then also from our president of the health system and our Dean at like the impressive work that the students did. I mean, they did everything from, um, you know, the implications, the increased level of people who will be living in children who will be living in poverty to what implications does this have for the workforce and the future workforce and the entire state of Indiana and the economics of it. And they covered the gamut of why this is an issue that this institution and our health system needs to be at the state house. Genius students in Indiana. (laughs) My gosh, you're crushing it there. Well, we have a lot of them, right? We have more medical students than any other medical school in the country. So maybe that's part of it is we have a huge student body. Love it. That is amazing. Yeah. Who who would have thought that that this would be part of your your CV, your portfolio of having to figure out uh, legislative work and working with government bodies and um, that level of protesting and the the ethics and all the ramifications that are wrapped up in that. And it, it is scary thinking about our faculty are at risk. It used to be, I remember in, in the GFA, the Group on Faculty Affairs, 10 years or so, it was risk of a burnout, yes, but now the, the burnout and it's also fear of their just their safety, their physical safety, right. not all, right. all moral injury that Kevin Grigsby talks about and all this. But 
it's it's a whole different level of concern for for faculty well-being is my gosh am i going to you know be hurt or injured or killed um in doing what i love to do it's it's right. new yeah and i mean certainly we, you know we saw during the pandemic the the change from you know healthcare hero to not believing in any medical or scientific evidence and this and this is just more of the same you know so it's it is um it's very damaging to people who chose this work. Mm-hmm. Well, Megan, this has been a wonderful conversation. I feel like we, we, I want to touch base with you in the next coming months to see how this all works out with you. This last, um, the this last issue and see how your faculty and, and, and brilliant student body are tackling this, this challenge. But I really want to thank you, Dr. Megan Palmer for being with us on the faculty factory today. I'm, I know all the listeners, um, learned a lot. I can't wait to get off this call and get to my email and send my colleagues your orientation program in Indiana. I love it. And um, yeah, tell all your friends about the Faculty Factory podcast. And if you know somebody who should be on here sharing their good news and interesting work and accomplishments, gosh, will you, will you let us know and send, send me an email at facultyfactorykim at gmail or just go on the website, facultyfactory.org. Thanks a lot, Meg. I really appreciate you. All right. Thanks so much, Kim. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.